as we step across the line this morning, we're going to do so by looking one last time into the book of Philippians. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Turn with me to Philippians in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. As we come from the, come to the end of the series, Philippians 2 confronts us with a choice. There's a decision here that the text puts in front of us. It puts us face to face with the eternal reality of Christmas. You remember the key idea in the series is that the real mystery of the birth of Jesus is found not so much in the circumstances of his arrival. And you'll notice we we actually haven't read that account yet, and we'll get to it on Christmas Eve, but lo, there were in that region shepherds keeping watch over the flocks by night. You know the whole story. The, the, the unexpected circumstances of Jesus' birth. But the mystery of Christmas is not really about the circumstances. The mystery of Christmas is found in the identity of the child who was wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. And I want you to see that in Philippians 2 as we focus this morning on the last three verses, verses 9 to 11. But this is a passage that we have, as Tim reminded us in prayer, been trying to commit to memory. And some of you have been working on memorizing it. So I'm going to give you an opportunity one last time to say it with me as we read those verses together. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Let's say it together. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let's pause there for just a second. Nice work on the memorization. Today we're going to focus on this last section that begins in verse 9. Let's say these words together. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's say that again. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's our focus here on Christmas Sunday. That proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord was the central message of the early church. In the very first Christian sermon that was ever preached, the Apostle Peter stands up and says, this is Acts 2.36, that God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That was his sermon. And throughout the rest of the New Testament, this is the central refrain. Some 750 different times, the New Testament calls out to Jesus 
and refers to him, proclaims him as the Lord. This Jesus, whom you crucified, now both Lord and Christ. And what I'd like to do on Christmas Sunday is unpack what that means, because I think this is the very heart of the incarnation. What is the identity of this child who they laid in a manger? One day, he would be exalted as Lord over all. So what does that mean? And that's kind of hard for us, because I I actually kind of think the, the word Lord loses a little bit of its meaning in our Christian vocabulary. Because it becomes so familiar, it almost becomes, uh, can I say this? I guess it almost becomes like a form of stuttering in prayer. And we pray to you, Lord, that, Lord, you would just do this, Lord, and, and, and Lord, that you would intercede on, and Lord. And I don't want this to be just a repetitious word. And I don't want it to be a lifeless word or just a familiar way of describing Jesus. This is not just part of his name, Jesus Christ Lord. This is really central to his identity. And as we prepare for Christmas, when you get this rooted into your mind, you will never be able to look again at a manger without your mind filled with wonder and reverence, and adoration. And I want you to see in particular two facets of the lordship of Jesus that are really brought to the forefront in those verses in Philippians 2, the last couple of verses, Philippians 2, 9 to 11. The first is this, that that to be Lord means that he reigns from the utmost position. For Jesus to be Lord means that he reigns from on high. Those words that you spoke, therefore God exalted him. Some of you, if you have Bibles with other translations, it will say God highly exalted him. It's a strange phrase. It's actually, it's the only time this particular kind of language is used in the New Testament because it it means literally that God super exalted him, that God super eminently elevated him to that place that no one else in all creation could occupy. The emphasis here is that God is raising Jesus up to this utmost position, to this highest place. His is the name that is above every other name. And what is the name that's given to him? That Jesus Christ is Lord. I want you to think about that, about what it means for him to be highly exalted, exalted to the, to the heights, to the highest place. What is it that is different about God after he came to earth, after the wonder of the incarnation, after the life that he lived, after his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension into heaven? What is it that is greater about him that sees him elevated to this place that was not there before. And perhaps it's obvious, but let me just say that, in fact, there is nothing there that's greater about him. The essence of who God is hasn't changed. He was God before. He is still God in Christ. Remember, we spent weeks on that, that to say Jesus is 
both God and man, means that he is both fully God and fully man. In becoming human, it doesn't mean something was taken away from him. It means something was added into him. His divine nature is still there, but then he takes on flesh. And you have this marvelous, mysterious fusion of God who is now both fully divine and fully human. So if anything is changed in Jesus, it's not that he is less God than before. It's now that he has somehow wrapped humanity into our understanding of who God is. And that's really what changed. That he became a human. That he was in fact resurrected in a body. The bodily resurrection. And that he ascended as this, as this divine, fully fully divine, and, and also human, fully human, new representation of God. He goes from the, the, the depths of humiliation and sacrifice and, and, and then death, crucifixion, to this place of honor and now to this place of exaltation. And in that form, Jesus remains fully God, fully man. What I'd like to do, and we're going to spend, I don't know, say about 10 minutes doing this. Is that okay? You can set your alarm for me. (laughs) I want you to try and put yourself into the mindset of a Jewish person. A Jewish person who had grown up with an ear for the word Lord, because you heard it every time you gathered in worship. You read it every time you leafed through the pages of the Old Testament. You knew that as you looked through the Old Testament, as a Jewish person, that God revealed himself to the world by name, gave his name, the name that we sometimes translate as Yahweh or Yehovah, same word, it's just we're, we're trying to figure out how it might have been spoken. And why are we trying to figure it out? Because they never spoke it. It was considered to be so holy, so sacred, that it was never spoken out loud. And so in worship, when you wanted to use the name of Yahweh, the name through which God revealed himself to the world, instead of trying to speak those, those three mysterious consonants, you said, Lord. Anytime when you're looking at your Old Testament and you see the word Lord all in capital letters, what you're actually seeing is the representation of the name of God because when they saw it, they would never speak it. And you grew up surrounded by this as a member of, of, of the Jewish people of Jesus' day. And you knew that all of the majesty and all of the grandeur and all of the infinite greatness of God was summed up in his name. And when they saw it written and they heard the word Lord, when they heard it spoken, they thought immediately of the great almighty of Yahweh. And then you get to Philippians 2. And the title given to Jesus, the title of his exaltation, is equating him with the Lord God Almighty. Lord over all creation. 
And even though the Old Testament is written in, in Hebrew, worship is happening in Greek. And so they're, they're hearing it now in the language of the day in Greek. So here's what we're going to do for, for now eight minutes. Is I want to take you on a whirlwind tour of what that word meant, of how you heard it in worship. We're going to look primarily at the Psalms. Because this is how they cried out to the Lord God Almighty in worship. And what I'm going to encourage you to do is, if you have your Bible with you, to to highlight or underline every time you see the word. If you have your device, you can use that function. If you don't have it, you can just sort of, I don't know, give a fist pump. Every time you hear the word Lord. And we're going to get this picture emerging of what this title means when it's given to the exalted Jesus. So let's let's look first at Psalm 83. Psalm 83, verse 18. The, the opening verses in this psalm are talking about how God and God alone is exalted above the world. But let's look now at Psalm 83, verse 18. Let them know that you whose name is the Lord, all capitals, there it is, that you alone are most high over all the earth. Flip with me now to, to Psalm 97 in verse 5. Psalm that starts talking about how the Lord reigns. It says, let the earths be glad at the beginning of the psalm. Let distant shores rejoice because the Lord reigns. But here in verse 5, it says that the mountains, they melt like wax before who? The Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness And all the people see his glory. And all who worship images, they are put to shame. And those who boast in idols, worship him, all you gods. For Zion hears and rejoices. And all the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, Lord. For you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. And you are exalted far above all gods. What you see emerging in the Psalms is this picture of the Lord who is in a class by himself. And now Jesus is equated by title with that same picture. Jesus is in a class by himself. He is incomparable and he is exalted. Have a look now at Psalm 95. Let's look at what it says here about he's not just Lord over the earth, but literally Lord of every facet of the creation that he's made. Let's look at verse 3. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods, and in his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him, and the sea is his, for he made it, and and his hands formed the dry land. And so what's our response? Come, let us bow down and worship, and let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Let's pause there and let's say that together. Come, let us worship. Let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Let's read on. For he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the flock under his care. Starting to get the picture. Psalm 103, verse 19. Here you just see the word Lord repeated over and over again. The psalm is just peppered with that proclamation. 
Here is God exalted, not just above creation, but exalted in the heavens above all the heavenly beings. And then look in verse 19. It says, the Lord has established his throne where? In the heavens. And his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels. You mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts. You his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. And now us, praise the Lord, my soul. Say that, praise the Lord, my soul. Let me show you just a couple more. How am I doing? Who's got the stopwatch going? Look at Psalm 113. All the heavens praise him. We just read, not just the heavens, though. All the nations are going to give him glory and praise. Psalm 113, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forever. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Look at verse 4. For the Lord is exalted over all the nations, and his glory is high above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. Wow. Let me show you just two more verses. These are in Isaiah. Because I want you to see not just the picture of what the word Lord means, but the zeal, the zeal that God has for that name. Isaiah 42 verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that's my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. God does not share his glory. So let me show you as it goes on one more time in Isaiah 45. This will be the last section from the Old Testament. But Isaiah 45, which I think actually may be the passage on which Philippians 2 is based. Those verses that we read from Philippians 2, 9 to 11. But let's, let's read this together. Isaiah 45. Declare what it is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who has declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? Let's read onward. By myself I have sworn. Oh, sorry. There is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you, all to the ends of the earth, for I am God. And there is no other. By myself I have sworn. My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. And before me, here it is, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. And they will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and they will make their boast in him. Hmm. Somehow, as all of that begins to fold in together and you get a picture of what it would mean for a Jewish 
person, a worshiper in the first century to hear the Lord, hear that word Lord spoken. I want you to place yourself in the position where you hear these words for the very first time. The record of Christmas Eve long ago. From Luke 2, when an angel army lights up the night sky. And this proclamation is spoken over the whole world. Unto you today is born in the city of David a Savior. And he is Christ the Lord. You get a sense now of the magnitude of that proclamation? That the baby born and to be laid in a manger is Lord of all creation, Lord of the heavens, Lord of the nations, Lord of all the heavenly beings, Lord of everything, everywhere, exalted above all other things, completely worthy of all of our praise. Christ the Lord, that's the identity of the child. He is Christ the Lord, exalted to the utmost position. So God, what are you doing here in a manger? <laughs> Don't forget the context of Philippians 2. Remember, if you, if you look back to the opening verses, you discover that Paul, who writes to the church in Philippi, Paul is dealing with a church who had become self-absorbed, taking advantage of each other for their own gain. They, they had been living a life that's probably really familiar in our day of, of trying to puff themselves up, assert themselves, gather good things for themselves and themselves only. So he starts off in Philippians 2, and he says this. He said, don't do all this out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of who? Of others. Don't miss this. Not only is Christ the object of our worship, and we want that to be true at Christmas time, but not only is Christ the object of our worship, but he is the pattern for our lives. What we're seeing here in Philippians 2 is that Christ, who's gone through all of that humiliation and now has all this honor restored to him, is showing us that the path to success before God is paved with selflessness before man. Let me say that one more time. because We need to get a hold of this. That the path to success before God is paved with selflessness before man. And this went against everything in the Philippian world, and it probably still goes against everything in the contemporary world. Success and progress in our culture revolves around promoting yourself, advancing yourself, asserting your rights. But the path to success before God is paved with selflessness before others. That's the pattern all the way through Scripture. God's servants go through selflessness, and then they are exalted. How many of the Beatitudes say that much? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, humiliation. The kingdom of heaven, exaltation. 
You see it in the teachings of Jesus. Whoever humbles themselves will be what? Exalted. We don't spend our lives asserting ourselves, defending ourselves, promoting our name. We just, we don't need to live that way. God does all the exalting we will ever need. I mentioned that there were two things that we wanted to see from those verses in Philippians 2, that, that Jesus is exalted to the utmost. That's the first feature of his lordship. I want to show you a second feature. And to do this, we're now going to step out of the Jewish mindset, and we're going to step into the larger world in which the New Testament of the Bible was written. It was a Greek world. The ancient Near East was Greek-speaking at that time. And, And everything that that culture stood for would color the minds of people who heard these words spoken. So we're going to try and listen to that word now from a Greek mindset. And if you heard these words as a Greek-speaking citizen of the ancient world, that God has exalted Jesus as Lord, that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, what would you be thinking? Well, for, for a Greek speaker, for a Greek citizen... Every time you heard the word Lord, you would think master or owner. You would probably even think about a slave owner who was called routinely a Lord. And you would have that in your mind. And think about it. That's a powerful picture when it comes to Philippians 2. That he who took on the nature of a slave now becomes Lord, the owner of all things. And the picture here is of one who has power and absolute authority over all things. That's what it means to be Lord. And in his very final words spoken on earth, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he affirms exactly that truth, that he holds this power. Listen to what he says, Matthew 28, verse 18. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has all authority. So what's not under his authority? I mean, that little word, all, three letters, it covers it all. He has authority over all things, dominion, authority, power. He has the power to save. He has the power to rule. That section of Philippians that you read with me, therefore God exalted him starts with that word, therefore, which literally means that's why, given everything we have just said, that's why he is Lord. What did we just say? We said that he was obedient to death, even death on a cross, and now he is. That's why, therefore, he's exalted to the highest place, given the name above all of their names. What does he have power over? He has the power to save. He is the Lord over sin. Who else in all of history could ever, has ever claimed that? Anybody in this room claimed to have conquered sin in your life? How we wish it were so, right? Anybody in history, any other great religious leaders claimed to have done that? There is none. No one has authority over sin. Take it a step deeper. 
No one in history claims to be Lord, not just over sin, but over death itself. Who has conquered death except for this one, exalted now as Lord and Christ? He has authority and power over sin, authority and power over death. I know that Christmas for, for lots of families is a painful time because you are conscious, more conscious than any other time of the year about a chair that is empty, about a crib that is empty, about a heart that feels empty. And there's something about the holidays that just brings all those feelings of pain and loss right back in in a painfully, painfully present way. I want to remind you of this, that in the incarnation, that in the Christmas story, we are given a picture of one who has authority over death itself. Authority over the grave itself. That we need not fear death because of who he is. That's the reality of Christmas. He has authority not just to save, but he has authority to conquer death. And in his authority, he has the power to rule. That's the picture of Jesus that emerges at the very end. He has the power to save, and then he has the power to rule. Colossians talks about how Jesus is the head. How about how all the fullness of God dwells in him, and that he is the head over every other power and authority and dominion out there. He has the power to rule. And uh, I want to think about this just in our last moment together before we close. Because there is a dangerous tendency in the life of God's people, of Jesus' followers, to somehow separate his power to save from his power to rule. We like the power to save. We'll take that but we bypass his power to rule. So we say a prayer and we sign a card and we ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins, but then we go on and live lives that are far, far from what it would mean to live under the lordship of Christ. There's no fruit in our lives. We call him savior, but he is not our Lord. I just want you to see that this is not an option for us biblically. That God didn't mean to leave that loophole open for you. If you look through the book of Acts, the account of the early church, 92 times you see Jesus referred to as Lord. Only twice as Savior. You cannot separate the two. I'll take Jesus as my Savior, but I will not live with him as my Lord. I want to invite you. I I implore you not to come before Christ this Christmas with any patronizing nonsense, singing that he, Christ, is Lord of all, if that's a truth that is far from reality in your life. Don't play games with the lordship of Jesus. It's too important. He is Lord. 
And the second misconception, and I don't know, maybe it's just, maybe it's just a difference in words, but I think it goes deeper than that. Is that we like to say, I've heard people say, I've probably said, you've said, I've decided to make Jesus Lord of my life. I want you to think about that statement in light of everything we just read, that whirlwind tour through the Old Testament and then through the New Testament. You decided to make Jesus Lord of your life? Rubbish. Jesus was Lord of your life, regardless of what you ever thought about it. You and I don't have the privilege of redefining or redetermining who Jesus is. He is Lord. And so the question is not, have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? The question is, have you submitted your life to his lordship? In the language of Philippians 2, have you bowed a knee to Christ? Because the absolute truth of Scripture is this, that that one day every knee will bow, that one day every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So the real question, the question Christmas confronts you with, is this. Will you bow now? Or will you bow later when it may be too late? It's the question of Christmas. Have you bowed the knee to his lordship? Not just have you accepted Jesus, not just have you prayed a prayer, not just have you believed everything about the Christmas message, as as warm-hearted as it is. Have you, in your life, bowed the knee to the lordship of Jesus? That is, in the end, the deeper question, the core question of Christmas. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. If you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the gospel. You bow the knee to his lordship. You confess. That is the driven stake upon which our lives revolve and upon which all eternity is based. What I want to do now is just I want to create a space here where God can move in your life. I want to offer that same space to those of you who are joining us from your own homes, kitchen, living room, bedroom, whatever the date is on the calendar when you're watching this. Have you bowed the knee to the Lordship of Jesus? It's too important. It's it's too important to let that question pass by. I want to give you the opportunity to reflect on what it means for him to be Lord in your life. To ask the question this Christmas about where your life stands under his lordship. And I'm going to ask people, uh, both groups of people, I'm going to ask those of you who feel like you took that stand long ago, to pound that stake deeper into the ground today. And I want to invite people who you're not sure you've ever really done that to take these next couple of moments to say, to say it, to say it aloud if you want to where you are, to say it quietly with me, to say, I confess, Jesus, that you are the Lord. 
that you are God and the ruler and owner of my life and I need you to be Lord and master over my sin, the conqueror over death. I'm not just going to believe in you. I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to do it with all my life. And whether you are doing that for the first time or you're doing that again for the thousandth time today, don't let the moment pass. In fact, we're going to encourage you today to do it in a way that's tangible. On the way in, you received one of these tentfold cards and hopefully a pencil. If, if you didn't get one of these, maybe you could just hold your hand up and we'll make sure that, uh, that our Gateway team get one for you. Those of you who are joining us online, they're pretty, aren't they? But they're not magical. <laughs> Find a piece of paper and I want you to write something down. If you're not sure what to write, maybe you just want to write this. Jesus, I confess that you are my Lord. And you sign it and you date it. I confess that you are my Lord. For those of you who are taking a stake that you put in the ground long ago and you're going to pound it a little bit deeper, maybe you want to go a step further and you want to write down one area in your life where you want the Lordship of Jesus to go to a deeper place this Christmas. Jesus, I need you to be Lord in this area of my life, in my workplace, in the quiet place in my life where I'm still harboring some besetting sin that's got a hold of me. And Jesus, I need you to be Lord there in my family, whatever it is. So uh, you can write what you need to write. But do something to place a stake in the ground today. And as you're writing, would you allow me the privilege of offering these sacred moments to God in prayer? Would you join me as we pray? Dear God, we bow before you. This morning, this Christmas week, we declare the truth of Scripture that you have exalted this child born in a manger. You've exalted Jesus to the highest place. You've given him the name elevated above all other names. He is Lord of all creation, Lord of heaven and earth, Lord of our lives. God, I pray that during this Christmas week that that people could receive the gift of salvation by confessing you as Lord. I pray that you would take whatever the next step is for us in our journey with Jesus, the next step under your Lordship. And I pray that the reality of your incarnation, your magnificent life, your sacrificial death, your triumphant resurrection, that the reality of who you are would come home to our hearts in a new and meaningful and life-changing way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You need to take a few more minutes to finish writing. Please do that. And then I invite you to just tuck this away in your Bible or in your pocket or in your purse. And then come Christmas Eve. Unfold it, put it on your table, 
as you gather to celebrate with whoever may be present. Uh, You're not alone, even if it's just you in the room. Invite your Lord to be there with you this year. God bless you all. Happy Christmas.